So today I'm going to be doing part two of that eight-day journey that is going to comprise the time period between when we're born, when we receive our immortal bodies, and when we're raptured. So in Revelation chapter 12, verses about 3 through 5, we're given the sign of the dragon. And our rapture is actually in the context of the sign of the dragon. And one of the symbols that's used there is that of a male child, a male child being born. And we know that whenever you see the birth of a male child, you're automatically going to think eight days because every male child has an eight-day wait from the time they're born until the time that they are presented to God. And this is the pattern that is going to be used for us. And we're going to be born into our immortal bodies. So there's another storyline that runs parallel with our being born, and that is the firstborn of... Uh, the 144,000 of Israel. And because they're firstborn, they are also a kind of firstfruits. So the 144,000 are firstfruits to God and they're redeemed, which is also another uh, word that's used in the context of baby boys who when they're born, uh, they need to be redeemed and that takes place on the eighth day. So there's enough information in the book of Revelation to let us know that the 144,000 are also considered firstborn and going to have some of the same things happening to them that have happened to us as firstborn uh, sons. And by the way, we're not talking about just men here. We're talking about men and women that when we become a child of God, we are all sons of God, uh, whether we're male or female. So we're included in those uh, 24 elders, the priests and kings and the uh, male child. We're all a part of that, whether we're male or female. So in the Old Testament, we first see a pattern for uh, rapture in actually there's two places. The very first one is Enoch. And Enoch walked with God and he was not because God took him. And I've done a video on Enoch. And the next uh, example of someone being raptured is of course Elijah. And Elijah was gonna be passing on a ministry to Elisha. Elisha would receive the double portion if he saw Elijah go. So there's a little pattern here, same pattern that Jesus followed when the 12 apostles met with Jesus on the Mount of Olives. Jesus ascended and told them to wait until they received power on high, and then they received their double portion, their first portion of the Holy Spirit having uh, been received on the day Jesus rose from the dead, and then their double portion on Pentecost. So there is a ministry that was being passed from Jesus to the apostles. There's a ministry that was passed from Elijah to Elisha. And we'll be passing on the ministry of the gospel as well from us to the 144,000 of Israel. So basically we have an eight-day overlap where we're going to be transferring our ministry of gospel ministry to the 144,000 of Israel. And I want to just mention about Enoch. Enoch didn't transfer any ministry. He didn't uh, have to uh, you know, walk with somebody and transfer a ministry. And the reason was the flood was coming. There wasn't going to be any ministry transferred. And in fact, uh, Enoch had a son, Methuselah. And Methuselah's name means when he dies, it shall come. So Methuselah lived the longest of any historical uh, person. And when he died, the flood came. So there wasn't any ministry that was being passed on 
uh, as far as Enoch is concerned. Uh, Enoch and the 144,000 are similar in that they will both leave and walking with God, the 144,000, they follow the Lamb and they'll walk with God from Mount Zion to the heavenly throne room where they have their own song that they sing in God's presence. So they are actually going to be taken in their own rapture, which will be about five months or so, five to six months after the rapture of the male child of Revelation 12. This is all by means of background. When you look at the story in 2 Kings chapter 2, where it talks about the journey that Elijah and Elisha made, visiting the various sons of the prophets, crossing over the Jordan, and then Elijah being taken, we see names of places that are mentioned. There's Gilgal, there's Bethel, there's Jericho and the Jordan. And all of these places are actually symbolic and they tell us something about our journey from the time that the reproach of Egypt is rolled away when, when death is swallowed up, uh, when we get our new bodies in the twinkling of an eye apart from dying, all the way through to crossing the Jordan, which is the the boundary of a new life. Whenever uh, the children of Israel crossed the Jordan, they were starting a new life one way or the other. And I've done videos on this and you might want to check them out. But today what I want to look at is actually the two places that I haven't talked about yet. The first place was Gilgal. And then after Gilgal, which is where the reproach was rolled away, and that's symbolic of our change, after that they went to Bethel. Okay, Bethel is mentioned in the Old Testament in several places. And Bethel was where Jacob had his dream of the ladder that was going up into heaven with the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And that's found in Genesis 28, verses 12 through 17. And I'll just read the passage to kind of refresh your memory. And Jacob had a dream about a ladder that rested on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And God's angels were going up and down the ladder. And there at the top, the Lord was standing and saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And I will give you and your descendants the land on which you now lie. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west, the east, the north and south. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. Look, I'm with you, and I will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob woke up, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was unaware of it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Jesus mentioned this passage about the ladder to heaven uh, when he was speaking with Nathaniel in John 1, 51. Then Jesus declared, Truly, truly, I tell you, you will all see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Okay, and this is a reference to Jesus actually being the ladder, that Jesus is the bridge of the, of the gulf that exists between man and God and that he is the one who creates that open door in heaven and the, the ability for heaven and earth to meet and this opening 
where people can ascend through. So uh, Revelation 4.1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So Bethel represents an open heaven, the doorway to God's house. And just as the leper and the newly ordained priest needed to wait seven days in the doorway before they could enter the temple to meet with God, we too will stand in this open doorway represented by Bethel. In addition, all the resources of heaven will be made available to us, including support and assistance from God's angels. You know, there's so much that gets packaged in, in a little word, and it's so easy to just read it and I, I do this all the time. We all do. There's, there's no way around it. You can't dive into every single passage and every single word that you see. But when you see something like the story of Elijah and Elisha and how ministry gets transferred and that you see that this is a pattern, and then you actually look at the names of the places, you go, oh, this applies to us. This applies to you and me. So we're we're going to be standing in the doorway. Bethel is the doorway. We're standing at the gateway, ready to go into God's presence. It's an open door. We haven't gone through it yet. But in addition to uh, us just standing in this doorway, and remember, this is the doorway that the lepers and the priests had to stand in as they awaited their eighth day when they could finally enter into the temple for the leper to offer sacrifices and for Aaron the priest to actually begin his priestly ministry on the eighth day in the tabernacle. And I've done videos on this seven, eight day pattern. It's probably one of the most significant and overlooked prophetic patterns in all of scripture. It's so easy to read these things and not realize that we're looking at us. We're looking at things that are going to apply to us who are standing really at the, at the crux of the time when this door in heaven is going to be opened and we'll be in the doorway and the angels of God will be ascending and descending and God will be standing at the top saying, I am with you, I'm with you. And this is so important that we recognize, especially as the time gets nearer and nearer when we're going to be uh, brought into God's presence. So after Bethel, uh, Elijah and Elisha went to Jericho and we all know that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And there's actually um, a lot of symbolism in the battle of Jericho that pertain to us and how we're going to fight our own battle when it comes time uh, for the child to be born and then to be raptured. And remember, there's this eight-day period of time. And let's just read the sign of the dragon, because I want this to be fresh in your mind. This is Revelation 12, 3 and 5, the context of our rapture. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now, if we keep reading in Revelation 12, we know that this dragon represents Satan. Okay, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Okay, So we're not talking about... The starry heavens here, we're talking about Satan taking and casting his angels, a third of the angels that are loyal to him, to the earth. 
What that actually looks like, I don't really know. It may look like just stars falling. Um, it may look like um, an uptick in demonic or spiritual activity. It may actually be like entities that we see, um, UFOs, so on and so forth. I don't really know. What I know is that when we see it, we'll know what it is. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, she might, he might devour it. Of course, the woman here is the nation of Israel, symbolically speaking. And the travail that she's in, and we're waiting for her to get in the agony of travail, which happens just before the birth of the child. This, I think, is going to be the Gog-Magog War. When um, an invasion happens to Israel, and it'll happen very quickly. God will initiate this. He's going to put the hook in the jaw of whoever Gog is, whether it's somebody in Russia or Turkey or whatever. I, I'm not identifying this person. I don't really know. I have my suspicions, though. And from just from the language from Ezekiel 38, where God puts a hook in the jaw, it sort of means that this person, Gog, originally didn't have any intentions of coming down, okay, and isn't a historic uh, enemy of Israel the way that we read about in Psalm 83, where we see this list of, of people groups who have historically been uh, opposed to Israel. Uh, historically speaking, Gog has not been um, an enemy to Israel. So God has to bring this person and his armies down, basically, and his whole coalition of armies into Israel. And when that happens, we're not there yet, but when that happens, then Israel will be unable to defend herself. And that's when God will um, enter into the fray and rescue Israel. And somebody will take credit for that. And I think that's the rider on the white horse who's going to come out and take credit for um, the battle being won, okay, but that's something I talked about on another story. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. And if this child is the firstborn. This is us, represents um, believers. This doesn't, this isn't talking about Christ. He uh, was never caught up to God or to God's throne room or to heaven as a baby. Um, and this is, is very plain here that heaven is involved, the real heaven where God dwells. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. And that, of course, is Christ and believers. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 talks about uh, Jesus giving us authority to rule over the nations with the rod of iron as well. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's Harpazo, raptured, caught up to God and his throne room, and then... After we see that open door in heaven in Revelation 4, we see the 24 elders present in God's throne room. And they are people who are kings, priests, they're going to rule and reign and judge and so on. So in Revelation 12, we're told that Satan is going to cast a third of his angels to the earth. Presumably for the purpose of assisting him when the battle for the male child begins. Okay, So at this point in time, Satan is not concerned about devouring the woman or pursuing the woman or doing anything with Israel. His concern is about us, okay, the male child. He wants to devour the male child. And to devour one's enemies is just a way of saying you're going to war with them and you're going to try to conquer them. 
And Satan wants to engage the newly transformed believers in the very first battle of the end times, the very first spiritual battle where um, that involves end time stuff. Okay, And you could say Gog Magog is like the first battle, but this is the one that involves believers, Okay, where we're a part of the story. And Satan knows that as soon as we enter into the heavenly sanctuary, that we are the next rotation of priests who are going to be ministering at the golden altar. And if we are rotating in as you know the next course or group of priests, which is what the number 24 kind of represents, it's one of the courses of priests that ministered, what that means then is that Jesus, who had been serving at the golden altar, can now take the scroll and move on to his next role as the warrior king. And Satan knows that as soon as we go into heaven and um, take the place of Christ and we have authority to do that, we are given the authority to do that, that Jesus will take the scroll, receive that commission from God, and begin the um, the engaging the enemy in a very powerful way. And Satan knows that once that happens, that game, the game is on. So our entrance into heaven is what Satan wants to prevent. He can't prevent our change, but he's going to try to prevent us from doing what we need to do here as well as preventing our access into heaven. So this is where the city of Jericho comes in. This is where the symbolism of Jericho um, applies to us. But I want to read the passage in Joshua 6 verses 1 through 5. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, Behold, I have delivered Jericho into your hand along with its king and its mighty men of valor. Okay, so God is promising Joshua that this is basically a done deal that they've already been delivered, and it's just a matter of walking it out. And not just the city, but also its king and its mighty men. So Joshua is going to have the victory over the enemy. Okay. Verse 3, march around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horns in front of the ark. Then on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the horns. And when there is a long blast of the ram's horn and you hear its sound, have all the people give a mighty shout and then the wall of the city will collapse and all your people will charge straight into the city. So Jericho was the first city to be conquered in the promised land. They uh, crossed over the Jordan they were circumcised at Gilgal, and then they were ready to begin their conquest of the promised land. So according to the pattern of first fruits, the first of everything belongs to the Lord, okay, including Jericho, the first city to be conquered. And this is the reason why Jericho, along with all the people and the goods and the cattle and the sheep, were devoted to destruction, okay? The living animals and the people were all killed, except for Rahab and her family. And the rest of the spoils of Jericho belonged to God. So 
this was God's city. This was his battle. He would fight it. It's the first city and it belonged to him as the first fruits of all the rest of the places that would be conquered. And the first fruits offering is the promise of a greater harvest to come. So if they won the battle of Jericho, they were assured that they could win the rest of the battles. Now there was a little problem with the next city, um, Ai, and it was because Achan took some of the stuff that actually belonged to God here, the devoted things. Normally, if you conquered a city, you could take the spoils from the city, but this first city, Jericho, was first fruits. It belonged to God, and everything in the city was God's, and Achan actually took something that didn't belong to him, because um, in this case, the spoils of war were to go strictly to God. And we read about that in Joshua 6.22, then the Israelites burned up the city and everything in it. However, they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. So the first battle in the promised land belonged to the Lord. It was won by the faith of the army of the children of Israel to circle the city with the ark while the priests blew the ram's horns. Okay, Hebrews 11.30, by faith. The walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. So this was an act of faith. Normally, when you go to battle to conquer a city, you don't just walk around it for seven days, and then on the seventh day, walk around it seven times. You don't do it the way they did it. But this is what God said to do, and so that's what they did. And it's because they did it the way God had asked them to do it, that they actually were won that first battle. And it was imperative that that first battle over Jericho, which was a very strong and fortified city, it was imperative that that battle was won because that set the impetus for the rest of the conquering of the um, promised land, the land of Canaan. This was the only time that the Israelites were ever instructed to go to battle this way. Now, at the time of Samuel, when the Philistines were fighting with the, the Israelites, the Israelites probably thought back to, um, to Jericho and the battle that was fought there. And uh, the, we know that the Israelites were losing the battle to the Philistines. And so they thought, well, maybe if we bring the ark out, we'll win the battle. The problem is that we have to have God with us. And the ark is a picture of, of God being with us. And we know that the Lord Jesus will be with us during this time that we're here. He is going to be leading the way. And what the Israelites, the Israelite army was supposed to do was believe that God would um, win the battle in this way. And so they trusted the Lord and they kept silence as they walked. They didn't do their war, war cries and try to intimidate the people in the city they just walked around it, walked around it with the horns from the priests blowing and the ark of God there and the, the uh, troops in front and the rear guard behind them. And they just walked around the city okay, for seven days until the seventh day. So what is the symbolic significance of Jericho? Well, I think it's pretty obvious um, it, that like the battle of Jericho, this is going to be the first end time spiritual battle in which God's people are going to be engaged. And remember, the whole tribulation time is, 
it's not a, a battle against people. Okay, This is when all the fallen entities are going to find their way, whether they're cast out of heaven or released from the pit, find their way to earth, to the surface, to our place where we live, where we're supposed to have dominion. And they are going to try to conquer this fully and completely for themselves. And there's going to be um, a a lot of uh, bloodshed, a lot of war, peace being taken from the earth and so on as these entities manifest during the last days. And the very first end time battle is going to be with us. Okay, The battle plan is to follow Jesus and say nothing. <laughs> That's the battle plan. The battle belongs to the Lord and there, there's going to be other battles during the end times which um, in which the Lord's people need to be engaged in some way or another, but not this one. Not this one. We're going to conquer by faith in the Lord, by standing still and seeing God's salvation. Even the use of the symbol of a male child at the birth of a baby tells us that we don't have what it takes to win this battle, that um, somebody else has to engage in this battle for us, because babies don't go to war. So that's a, uh, so the Battle of Jericho is hidden in the types and shadows of the journey of Elijah with Elisha on the way to, uh, for Elijah being taken into heaven and Elisha being given the mantle, the double portion, the ministry that had belonged to Elijah. So then we come to the Jordan River and I, I've touched on the Jordan River in other videos, uh, the Jordan River, uh, like most large rivers, actually represents a boundary. And symbolically, the Jordan represents the boundary from one life to another, one kind of life, one phase of our life to another. For the children of Israel, crossing the Jordan meant they were about to receive their inheritance in the Promised Land. That's what it means for us. When we cross over the, the Jordan, we are about to receive our inheritance from the Lord. For Elijah, crossing the Jordan meant he was finished with his earthly commission, okay, and he would begin a new chapter of his life in heaven. And for Elisha, it was the beginning of a, of a new life for him too. He was no longer the servant of Elijah. He was actually the one who carried the mantle of Elijah and the double portion. So for believers, crossing the Jordan has usually been synonymous with dying. You cross over Jordan and you go to heaven. But for those of us who are going to be changed from mortal to immortal, who have had our Gilgal experience of the reproach of Egypt being rolled away as death is swallowed up in victory, crossing the Jordan means being taken to heaven in our rapture. And on that last day, we're going to cross the Jordan. And the Jordan represents the final boundary of this life, the place where our life is going to change forever. And we're going to go through that open door that Bethel speaks of. We'll be victorious over the enemy, over the dragon and his um, angels who want to devour us. We'll have received our immortal body, and this mortal flesh will be swallowed up. Like the leper and like the priest, we will have been in that doorway of Bethel and ready to enter into the next phase of our life. So when we're raptured, we will leave the land of Egypt permanently. Okay, Our, our 
Egypt here, which is a picture of the world, and we'll see the defeat of our enemy. We'll not have to lift a finger. So just as Elisha crossed the Jordan with Elijah, he saw him leave, and then he took up the mantle. The 144,000 who were going to be who are going to be walking through this with us, they will receive the baton of the gospel ministry. It will go from one firstborn son to the next firstborn son. We're going to hand off the gospel ministry to the 144,000, and then they will take it to the finish line. Okay, they will take this ministry that's been going since the 12 apostles, since Jesus handed it to them and, uh, and transferred his ministry to them. For the last 2,000 years, this is the way ministry has been being transferred from one generation of faithful people who teach the next. And we are going to be giving this ministry to that very last group of people who will carry it through up until uh, just before the abomination of desolation takes place. Their rapture will be, according to my understanding, on first fruits in the spring that follows the, the fall that we're raptured. So I love the symbolism of the word of God. I love the depths of it and how it's so layered. This is the Hebraic style of, of Bible interpretation. And uh, there's so many layers here, and I know that I, there's probably more here that, well, I'm, I know there's more here that I'm not seeing. But what I have seen, I'm sharing it with you, and I hope that this has been a blessing to you, and that you'll leave a comment in the comment section, and we'll see you on another video. Till then, have a blessed day.